Hello, welcome to the House Einstein podcast. My name is Osman Parvez, and I'm your host. You probably already know me from the House Einstein blog, where I've been writing about real estate in the Boulder market since 2005. I'm also a realtor and founder of House Einstein, a real estate brokerage in Boulder, Colorado. So you're probably wondering why I'm podcasting. The answer is that after writing nearly 2,000 articles about Boulder real estate, I'm looking for ways to create fresh content. I'm exploring new ideas in the growth of my company, and I've recently stumbled on a handful of podcasts that inspired me to give it a try. These long-form discussions are a refreshing change from the soundbite, clickbait environment that seems to dominate today. They go deep, and I appreciate it. One of the things I believe is that life and business should be about experimentation. This is one of those experiments. During the next 12 months or so, my plan is to create 12 impactful podcasts. These discussions will be authentic, meaningful, and intensely local. I want to connect with the people I'm talking to, help listeners learn something new, and most importantly, have great conversations. As a listener, my hope is that you'll find these conversations to be great company for a walk, your commute, or perhaps doing yard work. On the surface, these podcasts will touch upon some aspect of real estate, but my intention is to allow the conversation to wander and go deeper. I want to not just get the real story, but the full story. So go ahead, pour yourself a beverage, have a seat, let's get started. My first guest is Ray Toomey. I've known Ray for the better part of 20 years. He's a familiar face in Boulder, the type of guy who can't walk down the street without stopping to talk to people he knows. Ray is probably most well known for being a co-founder of Namaste Solar, one of the leading solar integration companies in Colorado. People also know him from his work managing the stage and procuring talent at Chautauqua, and also for his work with the nationally syndicated NPR show, E-Town. For the time I've known Ray, he's had such a diversity of careers. How does one go from being a manager of NPR programs to handling the stage at Chautauqua to co-founding a solar integration company? How do you go from being a concert promoter to solar guy to metal guy? all the while filling in as a handyman in between to pay your bills. That's right, Ray's now a metal guy. Last year, he and his business partner acquired a 50-year-old business called McLean Forge. McLean, and here's the real estate angle, builds beautiful custom metal work for homes and businesses. It might be a railing or a gate, or it could be an art installation. If you can envision it, McLean can probably help you build it. And, as one of the only welding shops left in Boulder, they'll also attend to more simple welding projects, too. One of the most interesting aspects of our talk was about Ray's personal work journey. If you listen closely, perhaps you'll feel some resonance with your own life as you hear how he transitioned in his career while keeping his focus on the service aspect of his work and increasing his intention to create meaningful, fulfilling work for himself. So, in this podcast, we talked about humanistic workplaces, service as a centerpiece, his time in Chautauqua, uh, famous guests, what the experience was like at E-Town, and of course the backstory of Namaste Solar. We talk a little bit about Boulder business culture and craftsmanship, cooperative businesses, and really what it means to give back to the community. You'll also even get to hear about how Namaste ended up being featured by President Obama when he signed the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. So, Without further ado, here's Ray Toomey from McLean Forge on the House Einstein Podcast. 
and I'm here with Ray Toomey, and welcome to the podcast. Hello. And uh, you just heard the flapping ears of Harpo. He's here with us as well. We are uh, meeting at Ray's house to have a conversation about humanistic workplaces and his new experiences with McLean Forge. So, Ray, how's it going? Um, I'm loving it. I'm having a great time. Um, initially, you know, we're, we're still in our first year, so um, it's been a lot of sleepless nights and, and in the negotiations which were happening last year at about this time. Um, you know, there was a lot of stress and a lot of back and forth and negotiations and so forth, but um, now I'm really sort of sinking into it and really enjoying it. Yeah. So uh, tell me about McLean Forge. So Barry McLean um, founded the Forge in, oh, I think it was 1985, which is when I arrived in, in Boulder. So 32 some odd years ago. Uh, and he had, I guess he had had a background in, in metal and welding. Um, and uh, he opened, I believe, the fir or he bought a shop from a guy named Gustafson, I believe. And that was, that shop had been going for at least 10 years before that. And maybe, I think there was one other guy who owned it before that. So the shop history is over 50 years. Wow. Yeah. Huh. So he had a, a, a space down on Pearl Street and 20th. And uh, back, uh, you know, 30 years ago or so, in, in a cool brick building. And he was doing the same things that we're doing now, but he was trying to do more artistic, uh, more artistic things as well. So lawn ornaments and um, cutouts of Cocopelli and stuff like that. Um, but he always did utilitarian uh, fences, gates, uh, fireplace uh, surrounds. Um, we do a little bit of everything. Landscape screens. Um, so this is the stuff that you still do today? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yep. And all of it's handmade and on all your hand. shop off of Arapahoe somewhere? Uh, we're on uh, 71st and Arapahoe on Valtech Lane. Oh. Yeah. So um, uh, the, the landmark that we use is Indochine. Um, the uh, outdoor... Uh, yeah, sort of... Statue, um, statues and yep. fixtures yep. and stuff out there. Furniture. And, yeah. So... Um, so yeah, everything is hand hand done, custom made out of steel mostly. Um, we do work with aluminum. We do work with stainless steel. Occasionally, we'll work with copper and brass, um, but most of what we do is out of steel. Mm. And if um, if uh, listeners, if you have a chance to take a look at their website or visit their facility, they make beautiful pieces for homes. They're all custom made. Um, and Ray and I have known each other for years, and this is his latest endeavor. Um, how's it? How did you end up here? And yeah, so from... well, um, my career path is is obviously very, uh, very. Let me put him outside. Harpo's being ejected from the podcast. Come on, Harpo. Being a distraction. <laughs> so uh, this is real life and real time, okay. and. Harpo so. is now outside, so we're, we're back. So, all right. So my, um, 
my career path is so varied and so uh, uh, meandering. And when I tell people about it, I basically say the only, um, you know, thread that carries through is me. Um, but, um, but for me, it's not as, uh, you know, disparate or, uh, or disconnected as other people might see it from concert promoter to solar guy to metal guy. Um, because all of them have an element of service to our customers and you know when I was uh, when I was a concert promoter I was providing a um, either a, a you know a distraction a meaningful distraction of a concert or uh, inspiration or uh, yeah thanks <laughs> the blinky lights on the, yeah. on the phone yeah. are a little bit distracting we're just going to cover those um, so while you're um, a concert promoter I'm sorry yeah so um Oftentimes we would do, you know, concerts and, and I would work with the artist to do something different than what they were doing in the rest of the tours that they were doing. Hmm. Um, because we had a non-profit venue and because our venue was different, um, the artists could come and stay on the premises. It was kind of like a retreat for them. They, hmm. could, they could stay in one of the cottages at Chautauqua. We would provide an awesome meal for them and allow them to kind of take in the, the vibe of Boulder and, and maybe stick around for a few days and do kind of, you know, sometimes artist-in-residency kind of things. And I developed relationships with a lot of the artists to where I would ask them, well, you know, what are you working on on the side? You know, I know you've got this album that you're trying to promote, but what, you know, what's really getting you going these days, you know? And then I would try to get them to... Um, They'd say, well, I'm working on this, you know, piano and trombone uh, combo. And it's, you know, it's really exciting to me. And I'd say, well, bring it, you know, let's, let's give it a shot before the audience is here to, uh, to just give you a chance to bring it before an audience and see how you like it. And, you know, sometimes that would work. Sometimes I would get uh, roadblocked by the agents and they'd say, no, we want them to just do the... Uh, the standard tour or whatever, and sometimes they would do something a little bit different for me that nobody else was offering. So hmm. it was always part of my um, ethos to to have the concert be a special and unique experience, that they weren't just going to go down the road and then see them again in Denver doing the same thing, the same set. And, you know, I think the artists really appreciated that as well. Hmm. And Chautauqua, you know, was not a was not a bar it wasn't a really for most of the years that I was there they didn't have a liquor license up there or anything so it was just people coming to see that artist do what they do pure transaction between the artist and the audience hmm. um, so there was the artistic part with the performers but then there was also bringing in folks like Jesse Jackson to come speak or um, Ray Bradbury or, or Ralph Nader too. Ralph Nader, yeah. um, Al Gore came and spoke there. Um, we had uh, Terry Anderson, who was one of the uh, reporters who was um, taken hostage in uh, Iran, huh. uh, along with uh, uh, Thomas Sutherland, who was uh, they they actually were in prison together at the same time. Tom Sutherland was a professor up at. CSU, who was uh, just captured as a as an American spy, 
although he was just a professor. Um, but anyhow, so interesting folks like that. And, and sometimes we'd bring in, um, you know, like a, a priest and a rabbi and an uh, imam and have them talk about uh, the Middle East together and just go back and forth on, on trying to fix that situation. And, um, so it was, it was always um, striving for what uh, the original Chautauqua was, which was Chautauqua was the internet before there was an internet. It was radio before there was radio even. And actually what ended up kind of killing the Chautauqua movement was the fact that all of that information went out on radio and ended up kind of bringing it into people's homes instead of them going out to uh, concert venues mm -hmm. to hear the latest about the silver standard or the gold standard or, yeah. you know, stuff like that. For, for those so. of, of you that don't know, Chautauqua is um, truly a cultural institution in Boulder. And it, uh, in addition to a, a beautiful outdoor space that surrounds it with hiking trails, it's I mean, it is, uh, it is just uh, the cultural centerpiece of uh, regular programming in Boulder and, and raised time there. How many years? Decades? I was there for 20 years. 20 Over years. 20 years. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was, I, it was a significant contribution of service to our community. And, um, and from there, you, uh, you, you, you took a left turn or right turn and, and uh, got into the solar industry. No, was yeah. there something? No, yeah, no, there was in between... In between all of these things, I did uh, handyman work, and, and um, at Chautauqua, I did, you know, I did the, I was, my, my title was um, program coordinator, or uh, I had a lot of different titles, but uh, talent buyer was essentially what I was, and what that meant was that I managed the, the house uh, crews, um, both the technical crews and the, the house staff of people, you know, uh, taking tickets and getting people seated and all of that, the ushers and then all of the technical guys, as well as booking the shows and doing all of the promotion and all of that. So how did you go from there? And you were working as a handyman in between right. things. How yep. did you go from there to being a founder of Namaste Solar to now being a... Being <laughs> okay, a, so yeah, I'll take you on story. One of the things that I left out of that description for my, my job at Chautauqua was um, because I wore a lot of hats at Chautauqua uh, with, my, um, with the productions, I worked a lot on getting the auditorium, uh, fixing up the seats, fixing things in the auditorium. And so I had experience with, um, with the sort of technical, hands-on repair yeah. stuff. Jack of all trades. Yeah, and so, exactly. <laughs> so, makes sense. Break and fix it. Yep. So, um, so I learned how to fix things. And then uh, at, uh, when I left Chautauqua, I thought the phone would be ringing off the hook for people to hire me, and, and it wasn't initially. Um, so I did the handyman thing, and I, I ended up doing that for about a year and a half. And then uh, Blake Jones um, uh, was, had been a friend of mine from my ex-wife, and um, he, was, uh, he was one of my co-founders with Namaste Solar, along with Wes Kennedy. And Blake approached me and said, hey, I'm, I've been thinking about buying this solar company um, and 
are you interested? And I said, yes, I'm interested. And we looked at it. We looked at buying this company and the company had a very small component of solar and a lot of it was battery backup um, for uninterruptible power supplies for critical um, loads on, um, I don't know what that would be, uh, IT situations or banks or hospitals or whatever. And so they have to have uh, an un uninterruptible power supply. And so we started down that road and um, there was another element of the company called power conditioning and, and um, I wasn't as interested in those things. And so there was an offer that was made and I was thinking about it and none of that really excited me as much. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the company was called uh, uh, RMS Electric and Blake had been actually um, working with the, the former owner's widow who is now the owner uh, on, on trying to help her navigate the situation with that company after the founder of that company died. So we were working with her. She was looking for a salesman for the uninterruptible power supplies. I came in. I looked at it. I walked away from it because I wasn't as interested in, in, the, in the sales of uninterruptible power supplies. So I, I went away for a few months. Blake went to Nepal for a couple of months. When he came back, he said, hey, we're thinking about looking at that situation again and just buying the solar portion of that company or buying it and just focusing on the solar portion of that company. So we worked for RMS Electric for a couple of months uh, and worked at presenting a, a solution or a, uh, a buyout for the, for the owner and uh, to buy her company and that process got bogged down and uh, we got frustrated with it and while we were trying to buy that company we had basically founded our own company but hadn't realized it yet and we had done so much legwork at that point um, that when the negotiations for that purchase fell through we said well let's just go out and hang our own shingle and start our own company and I think n the three of us, none of us had started a company before, so we, we really didn't know what we were getting into. Um, <laughs> we were more interested in buying that company because it had an established name in the community and, and going out on our own initially seemed really fearful or, uh, you know, scary to us. And, um, and then so... But we had done so much legwork at that point that we just were frustrated and we said, ah, screw it, let's just go ahead and start our own. So we did. Hmm. And so that was in April of 2004, I believe, that we actually uh, incorporated. And I think it was in May or June when we branched off from RMS Electric. And I think what we did was we actually went out on, um, we went to one of the Boulder Creek festivals and, and put up a tent and we said we're Namaste Solar and we had uh, signs that said unpollute 
stuff like that. <laughs> on the Boulder Creek Festival. Festival. Yeah. Right next to between the atheists yeah. and, and the Nani and the, and the religious tent. <laughs> right? there <was> like... <laughs> There's all sorts of tents at, at, uh, for those who've never been at Boulder Creek Festival. <laughs> you, can, you can find all sorts of interesting, uh, not just homemade goods, but um, philosophies on, on display. Yes, definitely. So you had your tent up there. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, I only started trying to recruit clients and um, uh, we brought in uh, an electrician who uh, had a lot of solar experience, had worked with the former owner of RMS Electric. Hmm. And uh, and then we started adding, adding employees and we started making sales. And all of this was before the Amendment 37 rules Amendment 37 was a voter-passed amendment to the Colorado Constitution, which required our investor-owned utilities and uh, utilities over a certain capacity to be uh, mandated to produce their power from renewable resources. A percentage of their yep. power? And okay. at that point, it was I believe it was 10, and then it jumped up to 15, and then it went to 20, and then... Um, and, and then, uh, I believe 30 after that, but at any rate, so the rules of what you were going to get back if you installed a solar system weren't even in place yet. And mm-hmm. so selling solar systems at that point was a risky, uh, a risky deal. But our customers at that point were, uh, the early adopters and they were, you know, they were philosophically aligned with getting solar and some of them could afford it. And wait for whatever the um, so they weren't legislation really, was. So they weren't really obsessed with the payback period and the economics. Correct. It was the fact that they're getting off of carbon. Yep. And they're willing to pay a price to get their houses off, as much as possible off of totally. carbon. Totally. Yeah. So they were, you know, they were um, people who were driven by the ideology of the situation rather than the, the economics. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, over time has really changed quite a bit. Um, so what were your favorite parts of, of that experience of so, being at Namaste? What really fed your soul? Great question. So again, um, what I brought to the table there was I brought a community, community knowledge. Um, a lot of my marketing experience was transferable, and I got a lot of different stories going and really kind of interesting stories that were were different and got us onto the front pages of the papers a lot. Oh, you mean from a from a media perspective, people? Yep. Gotcha. Yep. And okay. uh, and then uh, made alliances with um, you know radio stations like KGNU and did an installation with them, which was um, you know not exactly a quid pro quo. There was there was some um, uh, you know trading of hey, we'll give you a system which will offset your electric bills, which will um, lower your operating cost, and in return, we'll get some mentions on, uh, on some of your shows. And so hmm. we knew who our audience was, and we marketed directly to them. And so, but we would do some crazy things like um, we did a bicycle install where all, it was a carbon-free install where we delivered all of the panels and all of the equipment via bicycles. Um, <laughs> so it was, kind of fun. yeah, so that was, that was kind of fun. Um, 
the there was a, a a big violent event on the CU campus the same day as that. So all of the reporters went uh, went in the opposite direction of our little install. Um, so <laughs> That's a fun idea, but the so timing was if, yeah, if it, it leads, it leads. Right. So they they took the uh, the the coverage on that. Yeah, uh, I, I believe. Um, you and Wes have a shared passion for cycling. It sounds like Blake was also a, a cyclist. We got him into it. He was more of a runner initially, but we uh, we dragged him kicking and screaming into uh, cycling. And we we also had um, we practiced yoga um, weekly in our space, uh, where we would invite in uh, guest uh, uh, yoga instructors and. Or we would we would just do it, pick it up, and do it ourselves. Hmm. Uh, and uh, the the employees didn't have to participate, but you could if you wanted to. And it was kind of a nice, um, yeah, nice little thing that we brought into our workplace and yeah. humanistic. Um, we also, you know, we took some of the um, pieces and parts from different, uh, philosophies and religions. And we rang a gong at the beginning of meetings. And sometimes, you know, there was a, there was a, uh, centering of, uh, everybody kind of just, uh, relaxing before the actual meeting began uh, for, you know, just 20 seconds or something like that. But, mm. but, um, I love yeah. it. I also am aware that the people listening to this podcast, if there's people outside of Boulder, are going to be saying, what were you, you were ringing a gong? It's so yep. Boulder. It is. It totally is. We're going to meditate for five minutes before this meeting starts. Right. <laughs> Which is, sounds normal to me, but it probably doesn't sound normal to this everyone listening to this. This is true. Boulder. So, yeah, we had things like that, and we, and we really realized that there was... Um, we focused a lot on that work-life balance. So um, things that are, are ordinary now um, that are kind of taken for granted that we, not that we introduced them, but we were part of a wave that, that um, brought those things in, like bringing your dog to work, or um, even I would say that we didn't, we didn't check our feelings in our, our personal lives at the door when we walk through the threshold of work, we, we kind of wore our emotions and our, our, our lives on our sleeves. Mm. So there was, um, during retreats, we would have um, business retreats a couple times a year, and we would actually check in and say, hey, you know, what's going on uh, with me in my personal life? Mm. And so there was a humanistic quality to that as well. And I believe, you know, I, I still think that's going on with Namaste, too. So, hmm. yeah. One, one of the most interesting aspects that I heard about and I, I don't know a lot about is the employee-owned nature of Namaste. Which... Again, you know, we were flying by the seat of our pants initially. I think we had, um, we had our, our attorneys um, draw up our co-ownership um, documents and our stock um, purchase plan uh, was it was probably two or three years before we had the thing really nailed down of what people were putting their money into and so there was a lot of blind faith and a lot of trust um, around those things and uh, 
Namaste went from being co-ownership model to a cooperative model. Um, and I can, I can elaborate on that some more, but um, the co-op model or the co-ownership model still was imbalanced in terms of the people who bought in early had more value to their stock than the people who came later, whereas the co-op model later on tried to balance that out by making one, one uh, share per person and one vote per person. And, you know, the, the specifics of that, you know, maybe Blake or, yeah, Blake or somebody else might be a better inter second interview for the specifics <laughs> well, the, of that. The nuts and bolts of that, I guess, are not, um, I, I, I think are interesting, but not really the most interesting aspect. I'm right. curious about how that affected the type of talent you were able to attract and retain and how it affected your experience in the company. Yeah. Like, n not in terms of finances, but in terms of the service component. The, yeah. The work experience. And yeah, and that's something that I want to, I want to touch on later when we talk about McLean, too. Um, I think it, it really was a uh, defining difference between our, for our customers, of why we were a different company because the guy who was installing your solar array on the roof wasn't somebody that we had just picked off of the street but somebody who actually was an owner in the company and so he wasn't going to be punching holes into your roof haphazardly and uh, can't see it from my house kind of attitude um, but really doing it properly and doing it right because that was, he cared about the bread and butter of our company and the customers as well. And all along, there was always a component of the different stakeholders in our company were the environment, our customers, our, our co-owners of the company, and our vendors. And all four of those things, you know, people, planet, profit, all of those um, were taken into account on, on major and minor decisions. This isn't just lip service to, no. to ownership. This no, it wasn't. Deal. It yeah. wasn't. And um, so, you know, there was an element of um, better quality workmanship, workpersonship. Um, there was a, uh, an element of um, that a, uh, a portion of our profits were actually going to uh, charitable causes locally for the environment or it could be homelessness or some of those things. Mm -hmm. So there was that element too. So we weren't always the cheapest guy uh, installing solar, but you were absolutely giving back to the community in, in more ways than one. Were there challenges in, around decision making with everyone having a voice? Yeah, there were, um, but it wasn't as difficult as you would think. Um, there were, we developed a kind of a legislative um, committee uh, situation where people would trust those committees to be experts on, on that decision and make recommendations and represent the rest of the company that way um, before a vote was made. And so the, the unless people had you know, a super strong opposition to something from some other perspective. Um, most of the time, the experts in their committees were were making the recommendations, and those recommendations were followed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So I'm thinking about the company and what what I know about it. At one point, I believe you guys got some national attention. Wasn't there a, yeah. a moment in, like the president was yes. like, meeting with Blake? <laughs> we no, we all uh, we all met with uh, with the president during the signing of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. What and, year was this? This uh, was I have I have the document. I think it was like. Um, Oh, it must be like two thousand nine or something. Yeah, eight this or, is with eight or nine. President Obama. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, they, the president was going to be signing this bill, and they were looking for essentially a backdrop uh, of you know it could have been John Deere, it could have been us, it could have been somebody else, hmm. um, but they wanted to do it. Uh, probably with a renewables company and they chose us and they had um, they had reached out to several different folks uh, and I think it was um, yeah Ritter was uh, was the governor at that point and I think they reached out to his office and uh, from several different points it pointed to our company and so they called us and uh, I think the the person who answered the phone you know, I thought it was a joke or a candid, <laughs> candid camera kind of thing. And um, we, so, so it wasn't, and we started setting up for it. And we spent uh, about a day and a half building a literal backdrop of solar panels that was going to be on the stage. Hmm. Um, at, uh, and we, we had two locations. One was the um, Denver Convention Center where we had, built a solar array on the on the rooftop and the um, Denver Museum of Nature and Science and the um, Secret Service came out and looked at those two locations and said uh, nature and science is way better from the perspective of security and safety yeah so we went there they were thrilled to have us there um, bring the attention to the museum and um, uh, Blake was the it was uh, the CEO, and uh, so he actually met and gave a tour of the solar array to both um, Vice President Biden and President Obama. And uh, but all of us, all of the employees, were on the stage um, in uh, in bleachers, wow. uh, right on the stage during the signing of that. And uh, and Blake was uh, chosen to. I think Governor Ritter introduced um, Vice President Biden. Vice President Biden introduced Blake, and Blake introduced um, President Obama. Wow! Yeah. <laughs> what was that like for you? Oh, it was it was um, it was magical. Um, it was an amazing day. Uh, we had we had to go through you know all kinds of security and uh, security checks and. Um, but the, the feeling was uh, absolutely wonderful, you know, just uh, to be a part of something like that was amazing. Did the publicity lead to good things? What happened oh, yeah. that? Yeah, our website went uh, off the charts. In fact, I think that it, it shut down because it had so many hits to it initially. <laughs> um, and then we had um, people like, um, oh, I'm forgetting the guy's name, uh, um, Beck. Glenn Beck was talking about our company and how uh, we were uh, <laughs> socialistic, uh, 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 basically communist, who were uh, uh, the the um, left uh, wing Obama administration was uh, in cahoots with, and um, 
Yeah, so that was pretty funny. That is pretty funny. Yeah. Huh. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, how do, we, how do we go from there to How, yeah, how did you go from there to yeah. McLean Ford? So, what happened? So I, my day-to-day job uh, was initially marketing, and then I saw a need in the company for project management, and specifically um, commercial project management, so flat roofs. Mm. Um, and so dealing with, um, either the CEOs or facilities managers or both of uh, corporations. So different um, Denver Denver groups. We did 16 of the uh, Denver public schools, and that number actually grew, I think, over time. But while I was there, we did 16. So I was dealing with the, you know, um, the management of the school district in Denver, uh, dealing with each of the facilities directors as well as their project managers. And, and uh, so it was a lot of, it was a lot of uh, high level negotiations uh, with those folks. And then it was a lot of detailed uh, on the ground, boots on the ground, scheduling and uh, interfacing with the staffs and the facilities, mm-hmm. uh, specifically of how we were going to attach to the roofs or where we were going to put uh, the inverters and the electrical equipment and stuff like that and how not to, um, you know, cave the roof in or, <laughs> or, <laughs> or uh, you know, while we have cranes there to to not endanger any of the students or, or stuff like that. So, so you're um, managing all of that. Well, yeah, all of those engineers. And, and uh, so I was out in the field a lot. I was dealing with, you know, the high-level stuff of kind of um, not exactly suit and tie, but higher-end kind of uh, meetings. And then, uh, and I loved actually, again, wearing all those different hats. Um, that job became more, um, as we grew more and more, it became a little bit narrower and a little bit narrower of what I was doing. And uh, so I got antsy and, and it wasn't as good of a fit for me anymore. Um, it started getting down into actually um, planning each job and trying to figure out okay, well, we did well on this job and we lost on this job. And so Hmm. um, actually a lot of number crunching and and, um, figuring out hours of... Sounds like your company grew and became mature and you got a specialized middle management job. Yes. Maybe it wasn't as meaningful anymore. It wasn't as meaningful. That's exactly it. So for uh, it was absolutely necessary. Um, my, My point was just that that wasn't really a good use of my skills anymore. You know, to sit there and crunch numbers, I think there are better people to do it and, and, uh, and do a better job of it. So I was starting to frustrate the people that were working alongside me and I was frustrated. And so then I switched into some other roles of back into marketing and um, I wasn't as excited about the internet marketing as I was of the old school press and and print um, uh, media 
Uh, and so I wasn't good there either. And so all of a sudden I found myself not being a good asset to the, to the company anymore. I kind of worked my way out of the job. Probably also not as happy person. I wasn't happy. Yeah. So, you know, and that was coming through as well. So I think there was a lot of, um, a lot of effort made to try to keep me happy and to keep me with the company. But in the end, it was better that I just say, it's not a good fit anymore. And so that's when I left. And so that was, that was about two, uh, almost three years ago now. I remember bumping into you in the neighborhood, and we, we live in um, South Boulder. Both of us uh, have houses here in, in Martin Acres. And I, I don't know where I saw you on your bicycle, or you were walking Harpo. And I said, hey, Ray, what are you up to? And you said, I'm, I'm done with Namaste. I'm working as a handyman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you have any projects, let me know. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? Right. <laughs> You're working as a handyman. So. Right. Yeah, and so it's just something that I, you know, during the time when I was uh, working as a handyman, I was sending out resumes to different companies, and some of those companies, well, a lot, all of them were um, either in the arts or nonprofits or um, uh, co, uh, co-working or... Um, like uh, one of the jobs that I applied for was with uh, B Corp, um, which is uh, has B Lab, and basically they're a third-party kind of uh, testing of how companies who say that they're progressive are walking their talk. Oh. Um, so yeah, check out um, um, B Lab and B Corps. Uh, they're they are companies that are doing good things for their employees for the environment for their um, wider stakeholders. So, uh, so Namaste was a, a member of B Corp early on and, uh, and democratic workplaces. These were the, the kind of things that I was looking for. And so I was applying for those kinds of jobs in executive positions. Um, meanwhile, I was like under people's sinks, um, <laughs> working on plumbing or, or minor electrical jobs or whatever. And um, I also uh, was working on my art, which is, I have a small company called Rejas Designs, R-E-J-A-S Designs. And that's something that I've been doing for 35, 40 years now of cutting paper into designs. And it's, the art form is called Scherenschnitte. It's a German word for scissor cuts, but I use an X-Acto knife and I fold the paper and then I, I, I start cutting designs in it. And my designs um, with Rehas designs was that I could take those designs and I could print them onto fabrics or I could cut them out of wood, um, laser cut them out of wood and make uh, lanterns or sconces, or I could cut them out of a film and make um, like a stain, uh, like a sandblasted glass um, window, or I could cut them out of metal and make, you name it, I could make just about anything with it. So these are uh, around the room we're in. Um, we're at, actually at Ray's house. We are 
they were surrounded by beautiful examples of this art, and it's it's um, an intricate pattern of almost like a lattice work of unique shapes that are um, I would say evocative of uh, their their symbolism. It's almost like a Rorschach. Do you see the dragon? Mm -hmm. <laughs> do you see the do you see the flower? Do you see the wolf uh, embodied in here? And uh, they're beautiful, and it's interesting to see and. Uh, they're in, you know, they're in wood and they're printed on fabrics, and and then the metalwork. Is that yes. how we got to? Yes. Okay, because I remember yeah. you were you were making these metal screens. Yes. Um, and they were they were beautiful. Yes. Um, and you were looking for potential customers that might want these metal screens and That's right. installed in their homes. Yep. And so I I installed a few of them. Um, both both of the installations I did were in wood specifically. So I did. One that was in a um, a nook for a TV. So the woman who who um, bought this from me didn't want to see the TV, the black square of the TV when she wasn't watching it. So she wanted something beautiful there. So I built bifold doors that latched together and covered over the TV, and then would fold out of the way when she wanted to watch the TV. And that was my first customer. And I bid it way too low and lost money on it. But it looked beautiful. And I had something to show on my website. And then uh, the second customer had uh, these nooks in their bedroom. And um, they wanted something in there. So I built some for them as well. And they were like four by eight sheets of, uh, of, of uh, MDF, medium density fiberboard that were laser cut and then I built a frame around them and I brought in some carpenters to actually put in the hinges and to fit them uh, with a jam around them so they're essentially their doors that open up in these nooks and uh, and then allow access to the HVAC equipment that's uh, a port uh, portal to go in and change out the filters in the HVAC, uh, HVAC equipment. Um, so it was a decorative element, and I'll uh, I'll show you some photos. I can even send those so that you could post them. Yeah, I would love want. that. We'll post the photos on yep. the site when we post this recording. So I was working on that, and I was doing I I did um, uh, a few shows. I I showed uh, up at NCAR in their they have an art space up there that they they show. So it was um, National Center for Atmospheric Research facility and uh, and then I showed at a gallery in Longmont uh, Tina Davis studio and um, so I was working on that uh, on on that project with Ray Haas and and I was selling um, I had uh, trivets that I had uh, sandblasted out of stone with these designs in them selling those online um, what's a trivet? Oh, it's a, something that you would put a, a pot or a pan on. Okay, uh, it's made oh, out of sure. slate. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's yeah, a trivet or a pot holder mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, and um, and then I I had some uh, prints made of of my work, and I was selling those online too. Mm -hmm. um, but that wasn't really paying the bills. So again, back to the handyman thing, doing that to pay the bills and. Um, just doing whatever on that. I also was uh, had started a a company called Teravite, which was a hemp company with some partners, 
and we were actually most interested in um, using hemp for plastics mm-hmm. uh, and trying to get a renewable uh, plastic out of uh, using the hemp fiber mm-hmm. and we uh, we did a lot of research. We spent about a year trying to build up this company and meeting every week and, and strategizing. We were for a while we were thinking about using CBDs uh, in some capacity, maybe trying to infuse it into dog food. And <laughs> we we looked at a lot of That's different like things. Throwing a lot of darts. Yeah, uh, it reminds me of the in the entrepreneurial community the idea of failing faster, keep experimenting, and try something new. That's totally. Were you? Scared doing all these things or inspired trying all these things? It was inspiring. It was really fun. I loved working with my partners on that little um, um, program. And and, um, how I met those partners for that was that I did a a boot camp, a business uh, MBA boot camp at CU. It was a week-long program at the beginning, well, at the end of the summer before the students came in. So it was a, a, a shoulder period and a, and a trial run for the professors at the Leeds School of Business at CU. But they went through, it was a week-long intensive, eight hours a day for a week of, uh, of Business 101. And so I went through that course, and during the course of that, um, Rehas was sort of born out of that, as well as Terabyte. And, uh, and then we continued to meet for some time. Um, unfortunately, with Terabyte, I think we were undercapitalized. And, uh, you know, the two, my two partners in that um, were both working on their own businesses and trying to have a family and um, bring, put food on the table at the same time. And I was doing the handyman thing. So we weren't able to... We were able to meet regularly, but we weren't able to commit to additional time beyond mm. our meetings and to really dive in um, full throttle into it. Mm. So, um, so I think it, it failed by just not having enough time and energy that we could really put towards it. So, and I don't really consider it a failure. It was just, it didn't, it didn't get off the ground. Failure is a funny word in our society. It used to be a dirty word for entrepreneurship that no one wanted to admit that the road to success is not paved on success. It's paved on failures about companies that, uh, ideas that started and then were let go. I certainly don't mean it to be a negative uh, tone to that. I said at some point you let it go and and you switch to focusing on, how, how did you switch the, how did that happen? So, um, clean. So, yeah, so I was doing, uh, I was making more and more of these screens, and um, I had time on my hands, so I was able to cycle a lot more, bike a lot more, and I put a lot of miles on during those couple of years between Namaste and, and, uh, and McLean. And that's right, you were setting goals. I saw these on Facebook yep. of mileage goals, yep. and there were bicycle rewards too. And having <laughs> met your goal, I remember that. Yes, so I, I put on, um, you know, like 4,500 miles, and then I did 5,000 miles, and then I did 5,500 the next year. 
And this year I've got about 300 miles. So. <laughs> You're done with bicycling for the time being. Yeah. It's just I didn't have any, I didn't have the time that I did uh, when I was sort of freelancing and doing the, um, uh, whenever I didn't have uh, a handyman job, I would hop on my bike and just go for miles and miles. And a lot of, um, a lot of business dealings and, um, and brainstorming was done on the bike as well. Um, and I really highly encourage that in terms of um, if you're working through an issue uh, of any sort to go out at lunch and go for a 20-mile ride and, and think about what you're, or not think about it, and then oftentimes the answer comes. Mm. Um, by doing something different, by doing something uh, physical, um, oftentimes the, the, the answer presents itself. And so I think, it's a, I think it's a vital part of a workplace to allow uh, for that break and that physical time because a lot of the creativity really comes from that. And so, yes, you're out of the office, you're not sitting at your computer, but you might be developing the next best thing for your company. So that's, um, and unfortunately, in year one of McLean, I just haven't uh, taken the time to do that. I've been nose to the grindstone as well as my partner. Hmm. And so we've just been focused on, on just really making sure that the company uh, is doing well and stays afloat, and so we've we've put all of our eggs into this basket. Yeah. How's that feel? So, uh, <laughs> yeah. <that> like? <laughs> so it like I started the conversation saying, you know, there was there have been sleepless nights, um, but um, it's feeling good, and we're doing well with the company right now. Um, we're uh, it seems. To me, and I hope the guys will uh, will concur that we have happy employees, and uh, we we are working on uh, fun projects and um, establishing good relationships with builders and uh, with our clientele. Yeah. How many so employees are you? We have to? three guys out on the floor uh, in the shop welding, uh, welding and fabricating, and forging. Uh, and Paul is more the operations guy, so he gets out there and he'll uh, fabricate as well and help install. I'll go out on installs from time to time, um, and then I'm mostly focused on uh, sales and um, the financials and, uh, you know, clerical stuff like... Uh, Making sure that our insurance is up to date and stuff like that. <laughs> it's fun. It's fun being an entrepreneur. You, yeah, you're you're the janitor. You're oh, the bookkeeper. <laughs> yeah. So you're uh, selling the old vehicles that you acquired with the company. Totally. So I saw that on uh, our neighborhood mailing list. Oh, good. This okay, that's seventies. Uh, yeah. Truck. <laughs> yeah, we bought when we bought the company. We inherited two nineteen seventies vehicles, which. Um, were really kind of cool from the um, perspective of um, they had a, a patina on them of just coolness. Um, they were both, both are and were hard to drive. Uh, 
the lap belts in the uh, Chevy, uh, which was the first one, Chevy pickup, um, that was a little scary not having a shoulder belt and uh, <laughs> and there was no there was no power steering and no power brakes um, and the uh, GMC is not any better than that it's a it's a in fact it's an enormous truck it's a four I think it can hold up to two tons of so four thousand pounds of weight capacity um, and you know it's a very it's a probably 15,000 pound vehicle. Yeah. Um, so when you're stuck on it, when you're on a hill and you can't get it into first gear, it's a little, <laughs> yeah. it's a little scary. And our employees were a little bit, uh, some of them enjoyed driving them, but most of them didn't. And I didn't enjoy driving them. So we, we got some new trucks, new used trucks. And with this business, you also you got this workspace uh, that were yep. forges, and there's a lot of equipment. We did a tour the other day, and it, yeah, the equipment is really cool. A lot of the older equipment, um, unlike the unlike the um, trucks, the older equipment. Well, those trucks are workhorses too, but um, the older equipment doesn't break down as much. I think uh, they didn't build in planned obsolescence into some of the older. Um, machinery hmm. and so those things are still up and running we've we've actually um, replaced or fixed some of the machinery that we have but um, we yeah we bought as part of the purchase we bought the the website we bought the the tools uh, we bought the vehicles uh, we inherited the two employees and we hired a new guy um, uh, we bought the uh, customers uh, and the and the name, um, and so those are the things that we got. The space, we lease, and uh, we don't own the space there. So what what makes it a humanistic workplace? What is, uh, we're what's starting. The we're bringing? starting on that. Okay. So it's not it's not a co uh, a co op or a co owned space yet. Um, the, the co-ownership piece of it is that Paul and I uh, co-own the business with uh, two investors, uh, Blake and Dan. Uh, and Blake from Namaste. From Namaste, and Dan from Namaste as oh, well. Wow. He was our sales guy. And so they're, our, they're investors with us, but they are also um, our advisory and uh, our board of directors as well. So they uh, help us look at the numbers, look at the efficiencies, and make, um, uh, they advise and make suggestions on different things, of, of different things that we could be doing. On business decisions yep. that you might be. Yep. What's, do you have a strategy laid out? Where do you want to take the company? Great question. Um, so, um, before I go there, I just wanted to get in a plug for these guys because they're a fantastic board and, uh, and one of the things that they've been looking at, and this is to go back to your original question about what's making it more humanistic about the company, um, the, our board of directors look at our workload of how much Paul and I are working and they say, you guys need to take some vacations. <laughs> <laughs> you need to yeah. take care of yourselves and and uh, they'll encourage us to take time off and to um, to re recharge our batteries 
So that alone uh, feels so supportive and, uh, and yeah, it just feels great. Uh, and so I'll go out on, on bike rides with those guys. And um, Paul is not a, a rider, um, but, and, and, and he's, uh, he's definitely a workaholic, so we have to, we have to reel him in and, and tell him, hey, take it easy. Go home early. <laughs> Take your no. wife out for dinner. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I, I hear you talking. Um, I, well, when you mentioned Blake again, it just occurs to me that um, people do business over and over again with those they trust, and there's a it's a relational, not a transactional, oriented situation with uh, with with him and and probably with a lot of your your clients and, and your connections in the community. And, and that's another common thread of service and connection to community and yes. doing good work and being authentic about it and, and taking care of the people in, in the company. It's, yeah. It's, I, I'm hearing that as a yeah, key so, piece of... Um, so many points there. Um, the, some of the humanistic things that we're doing is we're actually, we've, we've implemented a, a Monday morning meeting with our staff which hadn't been done before. And so at that Monday morning, we, um, we generally buy um, some burritos or some bagels or something, and we, have a, we, have, we sit down and we break bread together. Um, at that meeting, we talk about the upcoming jobs, what went well, what didn't go well on the, on the last jobs. Sometimes I'll go into some of the basic financials of the business, of where we're at and how we're doing. Um, and and then we listen to them of okay well what what are we needing um, so that you guys can do your jobs uh, better um, so it might be equipment it might be uh, I think initially it was replacing those trucks because they really weren't happy with having to drive those trucks hmm. um, so that's that's one uh, one way that we're being kind of humanistic in that way another way I think is that. Um, when they create a, uh, a deck railing or a specific piece for somebody is that we give them credit for the work that they're doing. And it's, yes, they are representing McLean Forge, but it is one specific workers, uh, who, who, one specific worker who is working on that project. And we try to let the customer know this is the craftsman who built your railing. Hmm. And he's going to be the guy who's installing it as well. Hmm. And so, um, you know, when they look at it and they say, oh my God, this is a piece of art and it just beautifies this room so much that they're actually thanking that, that worker. Hmm. Yeah. So that's something that we're doing. We're looking, I'm looking into the idea of doing um, co-ownership and haven't really quite developed how we would do that yet. Um, but it's something that is of interest to me because, like I said earlier about all of the work, when you have somebody who is an owner looking at it, they're coming at it from a different perspective than when they're just an hourly worker and they go home at the end of the day and they don't think about it as much. Now, we happen to have, at this point, we happen to have excellent workers who do care about the company and care about the clients, but there's an element there of ownership that's one step further than that that I want to get to. Do you think profit sharing models accomplish the same thing? Might be, 
we might go into a um, uh, ESOP situation. Perhaps that might be a baby step into into it. So employee stock ownership plan. Um, we might allow. I, I don't know yet how we're going to how we're going to get there and what the the grand scheme on that is. But um, but that would be something that I would like because. And this ties into our original theme. Um, for me, you know, renting a property is just kind of throwing money away. Mm -hmm. And owner, owning a property is, um, you know, all of the responsibility, but the upside is the equity. And I think that model carries through into business ownership as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you've got you're not just an employee, but you've got the equity in the company as well. And if the company does well, you do well, and uh, and vice versa. I can't I can't agree with you more. I it's um, it's an interesting puzzle to sort out. Yep. Where how do you the legal structures that are necessary, the um, the transparency can be a little bit frightening. Yes. Um, and at the end of the day, you, you want people, the only way to really get people to think and act like owners is to make them owners. Right. I think the profit sharing accomplishes some of it, but it's not the same as really being an owner. It's something actually um, my ex-partner uh, and I used to argue about was how to set up the company. Um, and I won't go into specifics, but, right. the, but how to set up this company in a way to encourage our then one employee to really be on board and then also create a structure to have more employees that could join us in, under the same umbrella right. and she was philosophically opposed to it for her own reasons mm -hmm. um, and I eventually gave up on trying to argue the position that we really need to figure out a way to make these employee uh, future employees and current employees have some ownership some stake in the game yeah but it, it's funny I want to come back to a topic that clearly we casually have brushed into but I want to dive into it a little deeper yeah. and that's um, in, uh, it's the ownership of the building Mm -hmm. uh, so, and I didn't expect to go here, but um, let's just go there for a second. I, there's been a bunch of businesses in Boulder that have closed doors because the cost to operate has gotten so expensive and they never invested in the underlying real estate. So philosophically, it's the same idea, yeah. but ultimately, I think it's always a, 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 it should always be a priority once the company is up and established and making sense to, to find a permanent home that you can control the underlying real estate, lest you at one point find yourself at the at the mercy of the landlord who has other intentions. Right. Yeah, I, I I would love to buy the the space that we're in, or maybe even the the entire building, and have that as a uh, something that we then rent out to the other tenants that are in the building. Um, that's definitely part of a longer range uh, strategy that I would like to be involved in, and it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily have to be this building that we own. Um, we're in the the position of we have very heavy equipment, and uh, and moving would be painful. And so, and we would have to keep. It's almost like we would have to keep one shop open while there's overlap, so that our production doesn't stop while we're doing a move, and yet kind of by definition, it would have to stop and then, and then restart. So I, I definitely like the idea of it. And I think our current um, 
uh, landlord is not in the position of wanting to sell, but um, but he might be at some point, and so we may actually explore that with him some more. My experience is that um, there are a lot of older property owners that care about the economics, but also care about our community. Yes. And for a while, I've uh, I've been toying with this idea, and it may or may not come to fruition, but of starting a fund to help the older property owners, the older um, property owners that have a lot of uh, real estate in Boulder, uh, an opportunity to have a, a exit, but also into a vehicle that supports the community. Mm. Because outside investors don't often have the same uh, motivations, the same priorities. It could, they could solely be about profit, yeah. but... Individual owners often care. I see this in the real estate side all the time. I've sold many properties where we were not the top bidder. And the reason they went with us is because our buyer was a homeowner, not an investor. Our buyer was oh, wow. invested in the community. And in one particular circumstance in Table Mesa, uh, there were three siblings who sold the property. And uh, two of the, by chance, one of them met my clients and... Uh, talked about it with the other siblings. And these siblings are in their 60s, maybe early 70s. This mm -hmm. is the family home they grew up in. Mm. And because my clients were going to raise a family in this house and they were investing in the neighborhood for their home, not as an income property, yeah. they chose my clients and gave up over $10,000. And two of the siblings paid out the third sibling the difference financially <laughs> because they, they felt that, that strongly was, about yeah. it. They gave up money. And I think the same is true for business owners, yes. uh, for, for industrial property or commercial property, that it's the same, it, it doesn't have to be different. Um, and knowing what you guys do and how invested you are in the community would seem like there's, if not this property, maybe there's another one yeah. out there. Um, he, uh, our, our particular landlord is, um, uh, it's not a secret, uh, is um, Terry Gallagher. And he is, has been a terrific landlord. Um, he looked at our, our situation for the business and he, he worked with us um, so that our first year was a little bit less and then we made up for it in years two and three, which was a very humanistic way for him to do business with us and to understand that, hey, we're just coming up to speed and we want to keep our expenses low in year one so that we can plan and, and, and just have some of that. So it wasn't ridiculous how much he discounted it in year one, but... It, it will be going up in years two and three for us now, coming up. Um, and so that was really cool. And, and he does have a stake in our business. He wants us to succeed, and he's also a customer. We're doing a railing for him right now. Hmm. Um, also, his family members have, uh, uh, two different family members have come and been customers of ours as well. Wow. So it's a kind of a family, a family affair, which is really neat. Well, who knows, maybe at some point he will be open to that idea. Or yeah, that and, and I think I'll just keep working on him about that. <laughs> and, and, and actually, um, it's a good reminder to me to, um, to as part of long-range goals. And when you asked me about long-range goals a little while ago, um, I can't say that I have um, concrete long-range goals for the business. Um, I think doing some sort of co-ownership plan or stock option plan is definitely one of those. I think owning the space is one of those. Um, another part of what I would like to see is I would love to see 
more fusion of Ray Huss designs and McLean into um, some of our customers, you know, buying my specific designs and incorporating them into their into their things. But I am also aware that my designs are not for everybody, and so we we have a range of options for what the designs on your railing can be and I think people are not my designs are extremely busy and um, intricate and so they're I would use the word intricate I don't think I would use the word busy on your designs but they are intricate and really we're talking about custom home products we're talking about taking your home or your house and making it a home nesting Yes. uh, putting your personal taste uh, and touches on a property, and um, it makes a difference. Uh, when I'm representing buyers, I can think of one house in particular, uh, and, I, and and Christy and Brian, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm talking about your house in <laughs> Superior, where all the houses um, in Rock Creek are very similar. And this particular house, somebody spent an enormous amount of money building this unbelievable railing that is almost like a centerpiece, because you walk past it on your way into the kitchen, and it is gorgeous there's nothing like it I've never seen a house with anything like it Mm. and it immediately was the focal point of conversation when we were looking at this house and we were a little concerned that the seller might try to take it out (laughs) take it with them right I believe we wrote it into the contract that the railing has to stay just in case there was any confusion because it was it was gorgeous and um, those types of touches mean a lot to people that are creating a home that, that personalized. Yeah. And that's what you guys are, are really in. The, it seems like you're in the business of doing. Is yes. It's not generic stuff. That's true. And um, I think one of those, uh, and one of the ideas is, uh, it was a group that I saw on the East Coast that was taking um, these giant steel buoys that are round. Huh. And they, uh, they, they were... Uh, cutting patterns, plasma cutting patterns into the um, metal sphere and using them as fire pits. And I think my um, patterns would overlay beautifully on that and I have not yet, um, I have not yet done one of these, but I do have a uh, tentative commission on that. And so moving the company into the more artistic things and that's that is definitely something that we want to do. We want to we want to serve the customer who comes in and has a lawnmower handle that they need welded because there's nowhere else in town to do it. Um, but we also want to serve the customer who's looking for something truly unique and uh, and beautiful. It sounds like moving from a job to a commission, to yes. an art commission, where yes. you're really helping the client realize their vision in steel and aluminum. Yeah. And our, our cast iron, do you guys do cast iron? Cast iron is, there isn't, yes, we do cast iron, but there isn't a lot of material in, and I'm not the metal guy. My partner, Paul is more specific on metallurgy, but there aren't a lot of pieces that are really cast iron anymore. Mm -hmm. They're, they're mostly steel at this point. Um, at least what's being manufactured uh, now. So yes, there are cast iron um, old uh, pieces, older pieces that we can work on, but um, and it and we can create the look of cast iron, but we're mostly working in steel. Is it 
Is it all mild steel or some of the steel angry steel? <laughs> Temperamental I'm actually, steel. Um, yeah, no, it's all mild. Um, we use cold rolled and hot rolled steel, and then and then we'll use different kinds of stainless steel. Hmm. And I'm gonna break for a moment. This is a perfect pause point. That's Good. fine. We'll pause. Good. Eleven thirty. Holy cow! That's not bad. Um, and we're back. Um, we just took a brief uh, pause there, and I'm back with Ray. Um, so, Ray, I, my, uh, my question for you, is there anything that um, you want to talk about that we haven't covered already, things that matter to you about your experience and your story that you want to share? Yeah, so, um, I've, you know, it's been great talking with you, and, and it's been kind of cool to think about the business. And I think in, in this year, it's been mostly reactionary. Uh, of just kind of, you know, um, trying to figure out what our pricing is on different things and, uh, and what our, um, uh, what, what kind of clients we're going to go after, if any, uh, sort of marketing efforts. And that's been, it's all been reactive. It, it's been very little proactivity. Um, I'd like to be more, more on the proactive side. But one of the things that I am um, really grateful for and I wanted to talk a little bit more about is just the, the day-to-day of what uh, Paul and I are, are doing is we're solving people's problems. You know, they come to us with a problem. Maybe they're not thinking of it in those terms, but it's something that they need to have done and they don't know exactly how they're going to go about doing it. We're Whether talking it's about design problem. Design problem or repair problems or I want my thing to do this. Got it. Not my kid is smart mouthing to me. <laughs> <laughs> not those kinds of problems. Prop, not those kinds of problems. Um, <laughs> we end up being the, um, uh, you know, sometimes color uh, uh, guys where we'll talk about the colors of their railings and how it's going to fit with the rest of their surroundings. But that's about as sort of uh, softball as we get. Um, it's more, you know, they say, I need this tool to do X, Y, and Z, and how do I get from here to there? Yeah. And we sit there, and, uh, you know, recently a customer came in with, they're putting in a countertop, and they, uh, a quartz countertop. And so they want this, the area underneath it to be open so they need a strong structure to hold up the countertop um, some legs and a steel structure underneath it but not take up too much room or be too big because they want to slide some stools underneath it to have a little breakfast nook and they're dealing with a small space and so we're looking at all of those things and we're looking at the deflection of the steel with the weight of the countertop on there and the um, you know, what happens if somebody decides they want to sit on top of the countertop? And, and so we're looking at all of those kinds of things. And the problem-solving part of that mm. is that just really turns me on. Um, we're not engineers, so we can't sit there and necessarily do the calcs on it of what the quartz's uh, deflection or ductility is or... The plywood uh, superstructure underneath it, but we can we can look and at our materials and we can play around with that. And 
And so we can come up with solutions and then we can add to them or, or take away from them as the case may be. Well, I mean, I think you showed me a photo of one of the custom designs that you created for, a, was it a, a, a sailboat steering? Oh yeah, right. That yes. Showed me. Tell yep. me about that. Yep. So um, they had a, uh, a ship's uh, captain's wheel uh, from a, a, probably a sailboat and uh, it has, it's made out of wood and it has a big brass center on it and some, the ship that it came from. And they wanted to mount it to a wall, but they wanted it to spin. So we actually built a steel post uh, that can mount to the wall behind it. And then we bought bearings that fit inside of the, the opening of where, the, where it would attach the, the actual steering wheel and then uh, fabricated a, a round brass ring or uh, cover uh, that will actually screw into the post. So getting really technical on it, but we, we came up with a beautiful solution for a, a you know, relatively small project, but we love doing things like that for our customers that are not necessarily super profitable, but they're fun. And they're going to have that captain's wheel and be able to spin that around and so they can like stand at the window, look at the view, and spin the captain's wheel. Is that like... it, no? It'll be. It's on a side wall. It's not right in front of the window. <laughs> I'm stirring the house in the. <laughs> um, but uh, it's a cool. It's a cool idea. I mean, what an interesting and unique design feature to have a yeah. captain's wheel on the wall. Yeah, yeah. So and the fact that it will be, not just. Um, it's going to move really smoothly on the bearings that we that we put in there, which are specific. They're like needle bearings huh. uh, that are in a circular tube um, that fit around our post. So, yeah, we get uh, we get things like that all the time uh, of just different little challenges that. And I love working with Paul because um, he's brilliant and um, uh, our. Uh, personalities and our skill sets are complementary. Um, I would say that he's definitely more introverted and uh, more focused on the work and I'm more uh, outwardly focused on the community and, and people. Um, so we're, we're complementary in that way and we both enjoy a lot of the same things. So. So that's really cool. It's good to be working with you. Yeah and then and then you know the employees uh, also of you know, oftentimes we'll, we'll toss it to them of, well, how do you think this should work? And that's a great give and take as well. Um, and I'm learning a ton from them on their trade and their craft. And we're all learning a lot more about forging, um, which is, you know, heating the metal and then shaping it in one way or another, uh, either, either by a hydraulic press or, uh, a uh, hydraulic um, or a power hammer or the good old-fashioned way of taking a, a, uh, an anvil and a hammer and just hammering the steel while it's red hot. That's got to be kind of fun. It is. It's really <laughs> cool. Yeah, and wow. twisting it and yeah. Um, so I'm learning a ton about that as well. And so, you know, t uh, for me, I would say one of the one of the greatest things about um, the business is how much I've learned and 
and how much I continue to learn. Well, I think that's a great stopping point, Ray. Thanks yeah. for being the first guest on this experimental podcast. Thanks. And uh, I really have enjoyed this conversation. I hope you guys have too. And um, thank you so much. Thank you. So that was House Einstein's first podcast. As you can probably tell, Ray cares deeply about creating humanistic workplaces. His Monday morning staff meetings are held over breakfast. The crew breaks bread and talks about what went well and what didn't from the previous week. Listening to their workers helps them do their job better and have better experiences working. Ray tells me they always give their workers credit. The craftsman who built the railing is also the one installing it. It's not just a railing. They treat all of their creations as pieces of art. If you do business with McLean, you're going to meet the artist. As far as this podcast goes, creating it was a good experience. Our conversation brought Ray and I closer together as friends. It was also good to hear about a resource I can now offer my clients when they look to customize their homes from a company that proudly makes things from right here in Boulder, Colorado. Well, thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, please click the link to subscribe to the podcast. We'll catch you next time.